In my view, church, conceptually in my framework of thinking, is a drip line irrigation system, not a sprinkler. And this was driven home to me very early on where people kept saying there's churches already there on the Central Coast, why do you need another one? They're already reaching the Central Coast, why do you need another one? And what I realised was, what they meant was that in a region of 10 minutes, in a, in a circle of 10 minutes drive, there was a church. There was a church. So the place is covered. Now that's a conceiving of church as a sprinkler. If you put a church there, then it waters that whole 10-minute circle. But churches don't operate like that. They operate like drip lines, irrigation. So that there are whole patches within that 10-minute circle who never feel the impact of that church, don't even know it exists, do you see? Because it's not sprinkling. Because a lot of the drip lines are broken. So there's networks of people that move through, which is why you can plant churches next to each other and they touch entirely different networks of people because it's networks, it's, it's drip line stuff. Um, the power of mission is people rubbing against people with the gospel prayerfully. And so we wanted to create a context and a culture where every person in our church was on mission because by the power of all of us doing it, the greater you could get, the more you could maximise, the more you could multiply, the energy you could build. And that's what's been driving us all along. So we wanted to align everything so we'd built this kind of momentum. Um, and the centre point for that in the early years was me as the leader, the church planter. I embodied the gospel. And I'm not boasting by that. I'm, it's just a fact. You embodied the gospel. And so how you handle the gospel and live your life will either further align your church to be a mission-minded church or will hinder its ability to be a mission-minded church. That's just a fact. So... If you are someone who talks about the gospel and the importance of the gospel to get out, but you spend all your days in your study and talk about esoteric things all the time, you will say one thing and align differently with your demeanour, actions, everything else. You get this, I trust. Um, every leadership appointment you make, uh, they will embody the gospel and so this is why I wanted to get up first because Craig was one of... He was the first most important ministry position we took on because I'd known Craig since I was 15 and seen him convert, seen him grow, seen him catch the gospel, seen him live the gospel and embody the gospel. And I wanted what he... Around him there was this vibe <laughs> and I wanted that to compliment me from the pulpit um, sending the message of who we are, I always speak as the captain of a lifeboat amongst 300,000 drowning people, not the member of a book reading club. Just a different DNA you need to convey. I'm the captain of a lifeboat here to save 300,000 people. And I wanted others in leadership around us who complemented that and drove it further forward. So that's why Craig has been very important for us. Um, and uh, he has helped enormously to shape the church uh, with this deep conviction. And it's been, it's been as we've together aligned complementarily to drive this further that it's, that it's made its impact. Um, I'm careful not to preach stuff that is of no relevance to the outsider. And there's two reasons for that. I think if a, go if a message has no relevance to the outsider, it's probably not the gospel. Do you know what I mean? Uh, and so... Church for us, theologically, is the fruit of the gospel. It's not the means to an end. It's the fruit of the gospel. It's, so we're, we're, we're against seeker services. We're inside a church. But the nature of the gospel itself is a declaration to the world to come back to Christ, to change, to repent, to turn. And so if you're not preaching that kind of gospel to the crowd that comes for the insider in such a way that when they bring their friends, their friends are impacted. You're not preaching the gospel, probably. You see. So yes, for insider, but constantly with a message to the world, which is for the insider. Now that's been um, a very important part of what we do. Um, but Craig has then worked... Uh, he's been... When he first came on staff at EV, there was only the two of us, and we work with an M structure... So we've set our church up according to purposes, not congregations. And so uh, I don't know whether you want to go through that, whether we get a whiteboard and I unpack that at all. But Craig, when he came on, he had the brief to look after maturity work, 
um, actually, let's see if I get this right, maturity work, mission work together with me, because I didn't want to let go of the concern for mission, um, and also some ministry. So he took on three M's, and I took on membership, magnification, and maturity, um, mission with him. Is that how you remember it? Yeah. And so Craig has been working, and as the years have rolled on, we have carved off M's from Craig so that he could focus more and more entirely on mission. And so we've had someone working in a dedicated way to make our churches, all our congregations, mission-focused, and that's been Craig's work. So over to Craig. It's been interesting for me to hear what Andrew said this morning because in one sense we haven't... He's been away on holidays. I've been away on holidays. We haven't had lots of time to compare notes, but I, want to, I guess I want to talk briefly about biblical pragmatics. Um, uh, in fact, I think I'm probably... Let me see if I can go back one. I can't. Yeah. Uh, I want to talk to you about, um, in one sense I've had the advantage I think over the years I've been at EV to be in the position where I've got time to think about an area. So all of us are doing evangelism, battling away at it. We're not geniuses. We've just, I think we've had the advantage of, as Andrew said, having a structure that's divided up our purposes means I've been thinking for a number of years about just a couple of things. Whereas you guys really, it seems to me, have got to think about everything. I've been thinking about maturity, mission, training MTS guys. And in doing some of that, it struck me, there's a, there's a biblical pragmatic about it. There's a necessity to, to, to analyse the process in evangelism, to actually hard-headedly step back from it and think through, um, at two levels, what's happening for the non-Christian that they need to hear the gospel What's happening for them as they kind of come to it and approach it? What happens for the Christian as they consider how they actually engage with the world in the gospel? Uh, it seems to me that what we've really done over those years is think through those two things. What are the pragmatics of the process for the Christian in their desire to communicate the gospel? And where are the obstacles there doing that? What are the pragmatics for the non-Christian person as they come to hear it? And how do we actually facilitate their hearing of it better? Now, that's effectively what I'm going to speak about. I'm going to speak about it in the reverse order, though, to that. So let me see if I can find that. I'll talk through the second bit first. The, right, the, I'm going to talk through the process for the Christian. The process for, for the Christian. Um, that is to say, uh, we, hear, we hear lots of things in the Christian world about evangelism and what's good and what's bad and most of the thinking it seems to me and I don't say this proudly or arrogantly I hope most of it's really 30 years old most of it actually pertains to a society that no longer exists so our materials are really too old to do justice to the position that most people are in most non-christians are in these days and so um, I did hear early in the piece that the desire was personal evangelism not event evangelism and my background actually just to give you a little bit about that was um, I came through the navigators at University of New South Wales it wasn't that I chose an organization it was that as a as a young Christian perhaps barely converted I met Cole Marshall and Cole discipled me through the early years of um, of university and I was so indebted to that and it did ingrain some things in me um, and it did actually present some things that I needed to unlearn the navigators were personal evangelists and everyone aspires to have a congregation of people who do that. And one of the things the navigators did kind of inculcate in people is the assumption that everyone could be a personal evangelist who could in fact evangelise people from scratch, from the beginning and establish them as a Christian and it would be great. But the reality is, it seems to me, down the track, few people can do that from scratch. Now, I don't want to, I don't want to demoralise you there because everyone can do some of that, but not everyone can do all of that. And so as I heard about that dichotomy of event evangelism versus personal evangelism, I think it's wrong-headed. You actually do need both. You need both because the average, the average Christian struggles to evangelise a person from scratch. The event facilitates it for them because it actually gives them an opportunity to say something and something that gives them the impetus to invite a friend to it. And actually, if you construct the event carefully for them, they'll learn lots and lots in doing it. You need to construct the event carefully for them. I'll say perhaps more about that later on. This is the first thing I want to say, though. Event evangelism versus personal evangelism, there's a false dichotomy, I think. 
Um, you actually do need both. You want to work at both. Um, but, but what's been foundational for us in thinking through the Christian and the obstacle for them is to realise there's some things you can do in your churches that are programs that will never... They'll be wonderful. They'll have some benefit. Um, they'll impact some people in the congregation. But without something far more deeply going on, without a certain DNA going on, it will never actually fly with the vast majority of people in your congregation. That is to say, um, I operate with three Cs. Some friends of mine who I've talked with in churches nearby to us have thought through this and they've added another C. They've added the culture C. But I think through conviction, confidence and connection, they're the they're the three I I operate on because it seems to me in analysing the process for the Christian, there's some self-evident things in it. So conviction, you can do all the training you want in the world. Um, You can run all the alpha courses or simply Christianity courses I noticed in the foyer that is run here. You can run all those that you want. Um, You can do... Um, have lots of events, have Chapo come and speak or Ian Powell or whoever it may be that you have as a special speaker. But uh, unless there's a conviction that you're seeking to build in the congregation and you work away intentionally at that on every possible channel, and I'll explain what I mean by that in a moment, you won't develop in the congregation member a conviction that will actually drive them to do anything more. They actually will not ever pursue the training they need to get if there's no conviction. They'll never actually risk their social capital to go and speak to anyone if there's no conviction. Um, they'll, they'll have all the opportunities that you set up for them, but they'll not pursue them without conviction. And so, you know, as I reflect on it, and Andrew reflects on perhaps our history as church, um, what has shaped our church has been, um, which is not to say we've got everything right, please do hear me say that, what's shaped our church has been that on every channel people keep hearing the necessity to engage in evangelism. So the, pre- the pulpit preaching, I mean, my reflection down the track, and, and, it's, and it's the way I want to engage in my own preaching, is you can preach neat three-point sermons. You can do all that, and, it, and, and it's neat and it's good. But, but unless it actually um, challenges the worldview of the person in the pew on the one channel, and on the other helps them see um, the beauty, the coherence... Uh, the wonder of the Christian worldview on the other, as opposed to every other potential worldview, you won't capture their conviction. So there's something about the preaching, which, which you guys will be, more, perhaps many of you, working away at very well, but I, that's foundational for us. And I guess we've discussed it's the, it's the air war versus the ground war. Um, there's something that's been foundational in that, but it's, that's not been sufficient to simply do that. It's, it's that... At the level of conviction, the same message needs to come through on every channel. That is, as I led the maturing ministries early in the piece, our maturing ministries, our growth groups needed to be about mission. That is to say, it's not where evangelism took place, but they needed to be getting the same message from their growth group leaders, from the Bible reading notes that they were doing. Um, They needed to be getting the same message about the indispensability of evangelism. That, That healthy Christian life must involve it will demonstrate itself in evangelism. So that our announcements at church on another channel, when it comes to mission for me, are never mere announcements about an event that's on. They're always an opportunity to create vision about what we want to be doing with the event that we're putting on. So they're not simply a imparting of information. There's a whole vision strategy going on behind them. It, it ought to happen in the preaching. It ought to happen in the small groups. Um, it ought to happen in the leading from the front. It ought to happen the way you illustrate the preaching. Um, it'll happen in the announcements. It'll happen right across every possible channel in church so that as we operate as a team, the guys I work with need to know that's where we're heading. Now, I guess the reality is Andrew's had every passion that I've had for evangelism, and so it's come through the pulpit ministry steadily and increasingly so that when he illustrates... <laughs> um, uh, I noticed him before not talking about the... I can't remember the, um, you sitting in a study with an esoteric kind of world of books, whatever it may be, which is not to say that's a critique of any of us here, but that people hear his stories about engaging with the friend who he does water polo with tells the congregation what, do you think? 
uh, tells the congregation he's an evangelist. He's actually working about the same things they are in the community. Uh, and, and that builds a whole level of conviction, it seems to me. And that's been foundational, absolutely foundational. Um, I'll press through some of those kind of quickly. Um, confidence, we did find, and I'm just now reflecting to you really what we've discovered, not what I understood, uh, not what I was clever enough to have worked out, just what I've discovered really. That, that again, you can do all sorts of things like that, but unless you help the Christian in the pew have some confidence about the fact that their non-Christian friends can be reached with the gospel, this actually will be a worthwhile event to bring them to, uh, you actually can say something sensible, the questions you're being asked aren't too difficult to answer, the Christian worldview has the answer for the new atheists, there's a whole confidence issue that goes on for the Christian that they are, I suspect, unaware of. And so, now I say that because um, from the beginning, I know that if I run a mission training event, a, um, you know, the kind of things that you run, how to tell your testimony or um, how to answer difficult questions or um, whatever it may be, and I guess I've, I've run many of those over the years, um, Unless the, unless the Christian person has a confidence that that actually will be useful, they'll never attend it, they'll never pursue it, and they'll never implement it, and they'll never take a risk. Um, now, one of the things I guess we lucked onto is, um, as we ran an event, which we devised for ourselves, and actually, Andrew, I'm going to get you up for a moment. Because um, early in the piece... Early in the piece, Andrew said, we need to develop something um, We need to develop something that will help people engage in evangelism at church. Now, I guess they're the loose terms in which you put it. I thought he meant a Bible study, but it wasn't, that wasn't what you meant when you thought about life as a cause. Yeah, no, no, yeah. So take us through, I'm saying this because I know it's your, it was your idea initially, but what, what was your insight in wanting to run an event which in the end for us has become the event we call life? What was your insight? There was a few things that drove it. Uh, we, we didn't want... We wanted... People need a routine and a pattern. And that's how I think you begin to build momentum and energy. So that uh, not everyone can do the whole evangelism from the beginning. To have somewhere they can bring someone, a friend to, that they've got confidence in, uh, that will deliver the gospel in a, uh, an appropriate place. To have that regularly happening in church that you can start to build momentum, that people know it's on, and if they miss it this time, they get it the next time and you begin to talk it up and it just starts to roll. Uh, the American scene, they use Sundays for that because Sundays is when most people come to church and their theology of church is seeker style. Um, we did the Saddleback thing, came back from there going, we, we can't run that process of the weekend service. But we need to have it somewhere. Where's the process? I'm on. We, we, need, we need to have that somewhere. So instead of us going... Sundays is for your non-Christians to come and Wednesdays is the midweek maturity church, we reversed it. And we went Sundays and Saturday nights now for us is the flagship church. Uh, let's put the Wednesday as the... And we ran it once. Um, and it was a means by which we can... The easy invite to a comfortable environment where the gospel's presented and you begin to... You know it's going to be on again. You know it's going to be on again. And it built momentum like that. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's, yeah. We'll 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 tell you. Yeah. We. In effect, simply Christianity. You guys know simply Christianity. Yeah. We're we're running a course which is not dissimilar. We 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 wrote it ourselves. It's in one sense it's not different to simply Christianity, though we've put it together a little bit differently. And so we'll tell you something more about that. What I got Andrew up to to demonstrate though is. There was an insight he had in that, which I think has been really powerful, that is something operating in the background continually that has effectively operated for our people in the way we've set it up, in the pragmatics by which we set it up. It's operated for our people in such a way that it's created great confidence for them that people can be converted. So we ran it initially. Um, Andrew did a couple of talks and I did a couple of talks. Um, I eventually took that over. And as we thought about the way we were running it, we realised there was a necessity for the congregation to see what we were seeing. We were seeing people converted, but they needed to see people converted. 
And so we videoed those who were converted frequently so that every time we promoted it, we promoted it in such a way that they saw at least two people who were converted from the time before. And when we didn't have people who were converted, we just put on the people who'd been from church. And they thought it was fantastic. And we did work hard at it being good. And we did work hard at them not having the embarrassment about, if I bring my friends, what will it be like? I'm not saying we catered to their whims in the sense that um, we, we soft-pedalled the gospel. We didn't. The, the gospel was actually hard-hitting, um, devastating some aspects of it. In particular, the presentation of sin is devastating for the non-Christian that's there. But the Christians um, grew in their confidence in what we were doing and we wanted that to be the case. Um, and therefore we kept showing them examples of people who were converted because we needed to solve the confidence issue for them about will I, invite, will I risk my social capital to invite my friends to this? Now that traded on all sorts of pragmatics about the way we set it up. And so I did early in the piece recognise we needed to brief the Christians who were there because Christians at an evangelistic event can kill anything. <laughs> they, can just, they can just destroy it. <laughs> and they did early in the piece. Um, they would sit across the table from a non-Christian person and harangue them. So we needed to actually work out the booklet. How do you, what are the things you do at this kind of thing? What are the things you don't do? When you work into, walk into the hall with your friend, what do you do? Do you have music playing or do you have the stony cold silence? And do you do it over dinner or do you do it over coffee or dessert? Is it different for different demographics? There are a whole bunch of pragmatics that were worthwhile working through. Um, but the end result has been that there's been an instrument, just one of which we've used, but a significant one, that's actually been quite critical in capturing the confidence of the congregation member. Um, and for that reason, because of that confidence issue, there's all sorts of things that you would do. So, for example, in promoting an event we're doing this week, it's been important for me to share some examples of my own evangelism in the community. Um, let, me, let me come to that and leave the confidence issue for a moment, come to the last one, encouraging connection. What do you reckon is the hardest thing for the average Christian, the average punter in the pew in evangelism, what's the hardest part for them, do you think? Now, I think there's many hard parts they find, but what's your gut? Yes, it's just what's the first step? Just how do I mention Jesus? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a whole bunch of them, but I reckon it is. We've actually, I'm busy, but I've got lots of non-Christian friends. I've got lots and lots of people who could be better friends if I spent the time and invested in it. I won't ever do that without the conviction that it's worthwhile doing. That's why conviction is so important. But how to, how to even mention Jesus in a reasonable, acceptable way? That's a confidence issue. Um, it's a training issue, but they won't pursue the training without the conviction. Uh, they won't risk themselves without some capital, some confidence that's going to be worthwhile. But how to actually get them connected at the level of communicating the gospel? One of the things we've done, it's one of the things we've done, and again, it's not my idea, um, it's tweaked an idea I had. But one of the guy, guys I've worked with is we've surveyed, and we, every year we survey, we survey our community, and we found out last year what are their four biggest questions for God. This year we're doing what are their four biggest doubts about Christianity. Now we're doing it for a couple of reasons. We want to engage with the community, but we actually do want a way in which the average punter, is, um, as we said here, can mention Jesus, can speak about those, can initiate the conversation because they, most of them don't have the tools to do it. I can do it any day of the week because I'm so, I'm so blunt. It doesn't really matter. But the average congregation member will never, very few will want to be like me in that. But if I, I mentioned to the, the um, bunch of the women's groups yesterday, it was my day off. There's a whole bunch of surfers I have relationships with. I could have friendships with them if I had the time to invest in it. I said, Rob, we're doing a survey at church and we're trying to find out the biggest doubts people have about Christianity. What do you reckon your biggest doubt would be? And he didn't blink. He thought about it for a bit. He couldn't come up with an immediate answer. I caught a wave. I came back. He said, yeah, biggest doubts. I don't have any. We ran through the possibilities for him. Belief in God? Yeah, I'm certain there's a God. Jesus, Son of God? Yeah, Son of God. Reckon he rose from the dead? I'm certain he did. 
He's got the foulest mouth in the water. He's not a Christian. Um, what came out of the conversation was his parents were in ministry years ago. He was a regular church attender. What happened? I oh, just drifted out of it. Any reasons? No. Now, there's a whole conversation waiting to happen. The point for, my, for the people I was speaking to was that was a dead easy connection. I've known Rob. He knows I'm a minister. We've talked about Christianity. That never came up before. And here's my point. Um, the average member of the congregation does have lots of friends. They've perhaps not invested the time with them. They don't know how to launch Christianity as a conversation with them. If they had more confidence, they would. If they hear some stories, perhaps they will. We've just tried to give them easy ways in which they can. So conviction, confidence connection if people aren't don't have significant connection what will happen for us as a church is they'll invite every friend they've ever had to life and the pool will dry up and we'll never do any more evangelism so we need to keep them outwardly focused and give them tools to help them be outwardly focused and build their confidence and build their conviction so they will take risks to do it even when they don't have a survey and and my observation on that, I, you've got a question, Andrew? I was just going to say, so you've done strategies, you've done three for one for one group. Yeah, yeah, so we get um, three one one in church. So at the beginning of all our growth group books, we want every term to help our people think through who are the three people you're praying for for one minute once a week. Now, I do take it and hope it's the case they're praying for more than that but I want them to pray for at least that. I want them to have three people in their minds because that's a connection strategy. Um, now, now, what will happen for us, of course, I was saying is life is enormously popular. It has the confidence of... Um, it has the confidence of most of our congregations, but we can track the ones that don't quite have that confidence and we therefore need to build that in them. And we've successfully done that with some that have been weak in it, and I'll mention something about that in a moment. Um, uh, but if we, if we simply do one and two, confidence and conviction, but don't help people connect, what will happen is they'll invite every friend they've ever had to life and they'll, that'll be the end of their three or four friends they've spoken to about the gospel. And so we'll not have more people coming through that. Um, we'll, we'll rely very passively on people signing up at church as they hear the event who are non-Christians who happen to wander in. That'll never reach That'll never reach the Central Coast. That'll never reach Australia. We actually need something far more proactive than that. We need them to be connected. That is not simply knowing non-Christian friends, but being able to initiate the conversation in some simple way. So they keep building non-Christian friends. And if they, if they have conviction, the jogging friends that you mentioned there earlier, the surfing friends that I have, the people they meet at tennis or at school or at the PNC, they will actually seek to initiate conversation. It's not as if you need to take them out of church to do that. What we did initially was we just did, um, we did Christian Explain in lounge rooms. We did that for a long time. Um, and uh, the, the little, I'll come back to your question specifically in a moment, Scott. The little problem with simply doing that, um, my gut, so this is perhaps one of those strong statements and you read back into it what you think's fair. But my, my gut on that is if you do the lounge room kind of stuff and that's your flagship, the problem for the congregation is they don't see, and actually there's a few problems, they don't see enough of that. They don't see that taking place. So now we are, are we taping? Okay. So, so there are churches that, with, with whom we have close fellowship who actually do most of their stuff within the lounge room and I do think they miss something. I think the problem they miss is, it's not an insurmountable problem, but I think the thing they miss is they miss something that becomes an event that has a life of its own and captures the imagination and the confidence of the congregation in a way that's visible. Um, now, there's something endemic to the lounge room on that because the lounge room is not an easy place for the non-Christian to come. Do you know, Your lounge room, your place. Whereas if I take it to the local coffee shop, it's a public venue, much, much easier for them to engage at that point. Plus, much easier for the Christian who thinks, I've heard so much about simply Christianity, I want to go along and see it. And actually, they need to see it because there's a confidence issue for them. 
what they're scoping out is, would I invite my friend to this or will it suck so badly that they're going to be embarrassed? So they need to go and see it. I've got to come back to Scott in a bit. But... Just to push on Scott, I, what we did early on was, yeah, we didn't have lots of non-Christians um, in all the networks, but what we figured was if we ran a course that the Christian would also be ministered to by, then, in my mind, we run this a number of times, we're going to do it in such a way that the Christians go, wow, this is awesome. I didn't even know this stuff. (laughs) That that actually it gets an energy, they go, I want everyone in church to hear this and their friends ought to come too, suddenly you've got momentum. And so we, we insisted on having, in the second week, an apologetic on the authenticity of the Bible, which we did in such a way, certainly early on, for the Christian to come away going, wow. And they do. And, and, and it's, the, it's the big week for many people, isn't it? And that actually that gives lots of enthusiasm for people to come to it and, and, and keep moving on. The other thing that's powerful about the public event we recognise, which builds momentum, is Christians, non-Christians see non-Christians. And there's a comfort there and a kind of a relational support there that makes it them have a more positive experience, which makes it easy for my friend to bring their non-Christian knowing they'll have a positive experience. All of that works together. They were the things we were trading on just pragmatically. Yeah, yeah when we, we never ran the life course in a lounge room. We immediately ran it at a... Um, let's just come back to Scott's question in a moment. Um, we immediately ran it in a... just a little rotary club hall. Um, and it was a... You know, it was, it was pretty dingy. It was the best we could find. It was an appropriate space for what we had, and we ran it there for a while. And we ran it there with about 27 people in total, which was an appropriate number for the room, and that's, the, that's a critical factor. It's a pragmatic. Um, what size room do you have for what number of people? Um, this, you know, this size room for 27 people, could you set it up well? You probably could set it up in a way that's appropriate for 27 people. Um, Scott, we had a few non-Christians, I think maybe four or five at the first one. We had a whole bunch of Christians and we realised pretty quickly we need to brief them carefully so that they're not trying to desperately convert the one lone non-Christian opposite them on the table. Um, and they realise, I'm the target. <laughs> you know, I've got something on my forehead and everyone's aiming at me. And so that's why we had to brief the, the Christians really well. We ran it with the majority of Christians initially. Um, but we, we quickly gained their confidence so they began to invite their friends so that, um, so that typically it would, be, it would be almost one-to-one, Christians to non-Christians. It's actually a little bit less than that. That is, there are almost always more Christians than non-Christians because the non-Christians aren't always reliable. Some weeks they don't show and the Christians are still there because they're faithful. We have a speaker. We've deliberately not gone the video away. We never go that way. Um, we've had people sit at tables. There might be 10 tables of seven each around a room. Uh, there's, a, there's a Christian who's helping conduct, just facilitate the discussion. There might be a couple of table leaders on each table with, for seven people. Um, I'd give a 15-minute talk. It's probably longer than that, in fact. Um, we might see some video, and then we'd stop, give them time to discuss it around the tables, um, my observation early in the piece was people need to process what they've heard before they can generate questions. And so we finish a talk, they have 10 or 15 minutes, they discuss it around the table and they help one another generate the questions and they throw them to me. Um, and and it's kind of there's nothing off limits. They can ask whatever they want. And part, part of that is what Andrew's saying there is to, have non, to see non-Christians asking the hard questions around them and to see the Christians not simply not seeking to shut those down and answer them from the floor immediately gives a permission for the non-Christian to ask, here's a venue where I can really ask whatever I want. That's really important. Have I got you there now? Yeah, great. Just runs on a different channel. So growth group continues on. But on a Wednesday night or a Tuesday night or a Thursday night, we run life and people who've got friends invite them along and that means they might, they might dip on their, out on their growth group for six weeks. Is that 
that work for you there? Might be, yeah, might be, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, I've got to say, growth groups have an enormously high profile for us. Um, so if they've got a friend that they're bringing to, evangel- to, you know, to see evangelise, I guess what that says is that's a big priority. So they don't dip out lightly. It's, it's, we, uh, every year, this might be the of the culture, every year we start, <laughs> every year, do I need to stand up? Every year we, um, when we plan our year and have done this from the very beginning, we put the mission stuff in the calendar first. So we work out what's the best way to mission and, um, and then we build the rest of the program around it, which means that our church is um, just in terms of calendar driven by mission. For, and and the, the cash value there was in churches I was converted into and ministered in for many years prior to the Central Coast, January was always holiday time. Everyone went on holidays, ministers went on holidays, downtime. And then it all started up in February. Um, I, I gradually became more and more frustrated because all my best evangelistic conversations happened in January. Because non-Christians, that's their downtime, and so they've got energy to think and kind of start to explore the big questions of life. You know, the late night, warm, sitting around. And, stuff. and so I started to think, you know, that kind of fishing, if, if, if you want to get the... I, w- I found a fishing spot when I was on holidays which you had to wade out to in the surf, climb up some rocks, clamber across and things, and the fishing was fantastic. It was really hard work, and I was tempted just to go off the beach where it was easy, but you never caught anything. Do you know what I mean? And so I worked out, if you're going to evangelise and win people for Christ, you've actually got to find the time that suits them. <laughs> so we, our January is off-limit for holidays. No one goes on holidays in January. That is our big kick-off the whole evangelistic momentum for church time. Um, summer schools rule that all that stuff just changes for us because we're committed to mission driving the engine of church. So we run. So life is just one component of a couple that we've put in place big time to build the um, culture, ethos, vibe that we're about. Mission growth group. You can miss your growth group to do mission. Yeah, that's the kind of culture. Yeah. Do you want to ask anything else on that? I've got fifteen minutes. I've I've talked about some of this implicitly, um, the second step. Do you, if you want to ask any more, otherwise I'll, I'll look into that. The conversion process, I, I talked about two processes, one for the non-Christian, one for the Christian. I've talked about the one for the Christian, but for the non-Christian, there's a process. Um, now, now you, you guys will get this, I, I realise, because um, it seems to me it's so dead obvious, but the beach mission, the average beach mission that's, that's run, that's 1950s thinking. Because um, usually what's happened is at the beach mission, a bunch of people come away from somewhere to a holiday destination. The beach mission evangelises those people for the 10 days with the expectation they'll go back converted and write letters to them as they've faithfully done it. It's been a wonderful, tremendous ministry in its time. But the reality of the population we're dealing with is... Um, gee, I, went, I was at University of New South Wales campus in the late 1970s and 1980s, I, I had instances where I did evangelise people over lunchtime and they were converted over lunchtime, but that hardly ever happens anymore, does it? Um, so the idea that people will go away on holidays to a beach mission and they'll hear the gospel during those 10 days and they will be converted, God can certainly do, can certainly do. But the reality is it doesn't occur that much anymore because there's so much background that the average non-Christian in the community simply doesn't have that they did have in the 1950s and the 1960s. They just don't have it anymore. And so there's a series of going to point... Oh, I haven't put it up there. Going to point B there. There's a series of smaller steps that people need, a series of smaller steps they need before they ever grasp the gospel. Um, now, I'm saying that because in our upcoming period, our Christmas period, there's Christmas services... There's outdoor carols. Then there's Summerfest, which is not a beach mission. It's an urban mission. It's a, it's a mission that's built around church. Um, people will come onto our block. We'll have 860 kids um, during the course of the 
that week. Um, we'll have a, um, several hundred parents, um, about 400 families, half of whom have not got anything to do with our church, uh, half of whom don't have anything to do with the gospel. And their kids will hear something of the gospel during the course of the week. And we find now, actually down the track, people have been converted as they've heard that year by year. But the parents who sit in the tent will hear a bunch of soft talks that will enable, they're pre-evangelistic talks really, that will help them engage with the gospel in some fashion. Simply brought along by friends who are in the congregation. And there's a step in that. There's a small step for them. But the next step might be that they come along to church and hear the January series, the summer series which our people have been out surveying for. Our guys have gone and said, what's your biggest doubt? They said, my biggest doubt really is, did Jesus rise from the dead? And they go back and say, you know what, we're preaching on that one in January. Why don't you come along? So their step from Summerfest might be, because Summerfest will give them an impetus, the non-Christian, that, yeah, I ought to investigate it more. I've always had questions. But the small step might be to either come along to church or more likely, and I'm going to go back to point A on this little slide here, more likely they'll come to life. They'll come to the life event that we are explaining before to Mike. Our observation, Andrew spoke about it in his, um, his introduction, church is not, for most of our congregations, is not the place where the non-Christian engages. Just a, culturally, that's not... Doesn't happen in quite the same way anymore. So that if we're waiting for the non-Christian passively to walk through the door, you'll you'll wait a long time before you have lots and lots of that happening, unless there's something extraordinary happening in the church, and you can set that up, of course. But church is not the evangelistic event for us. And as we went over to Saddleback, my real problem with, with it was their ecclesiology was so it was unusual. It was, it was actually their view of church was such that it was a place where people were evangelised, not where the believer was matured, and we didn't ever want to go down that track. So that's why we set up the event outside of church. But our observation is, for our morning congregations, most non-Christians engage through life. They go to a bigger event, a carols or a Christmas service or an Easter service or a summer series or a summer fest, um, and there's a there's a bigger event which draws people's interest for a more intensive event. Mind you, what we have found is, as we've worked at it, we've grown a, big, a bigger fringe of non-Christians in church. And, and so we do continually analyse how many non-Christians have we got in church. Because if you've got no non-Christians in church, what does that tell you? Something you're doing that just is never drawing people. In fact, it's, we would say it's an unhealthy church that's not drawing non-Christians. And so we, we want the preaching from the front to continually assume the non-Christians are there. So let me give you a quick case study to, to finish. Our, um, our night service has been, and they won't in any way feel offended by my saying this, but our night service over the years has not been in any way our best service evangelistically. Um, our, our morning services were better. Our, our 40-year-old parents with kids would have been much better evangelistically than our night service. Now, is that your experience? Not, sorry? It's been young adults. Yeah, it's been young adults. Um, there have been various things, I guess, that have perhaps contributed to that. They've been a different culture from us, and we did find out that things that work in morning won't necessarily work at night. And I, I spoke to the um, the young pastor from that night EV congregation last night to think through with him what did he think were the most significant things in changing their competence and their desire for evangelism. Now I think it is the case um, they recognised they needed to promote the stories of people who are converted. And they've done that very, very well. They, they do it differently to the way I do it. I'm not yet convinced they do it the way I want them to do it. Um, but they actually do major on... They major on a story that has a great sense of authenticity about it. So they, they continually video people. In fact, every three weeks they show a video of a person who's been converted. And the stories are absolutely fantastic. Um, but what that's done for them is, among other things, it's built an expectation that people their age can be converted... 
because I think it is the case they're a hard segment of the population to reach. I do want to think clearly, how do we reach the Gen Y? But they've done a bit more than that as well. um, After many, many years of our high school ministries being run in a certain way, they eventually did, and it's taken a long time to do it, but it's paid dividends. They've they've gone into the schools and taken the ministry out of the classroom where they had 10 people or something like that doing Bible study. They took it outside into the playground and they lost people doing it in the short term. But what it flagged was that they wanted to be public about the gospel and so they brought along the chips, you know, and that sort of stuff. And they, they provided the chips and they just someone gives a talk. But what it's done to the night congregation is it said Christianity is robust, it's public, and we're not ashamed to proclaim it. <laughs> and so as they've seen people become Christians through that high school ministry, those guys have a, imbibed a certain culture and expectation about the gospel, they've taken back into night church and changed it. They've made it a much more outward congregation. So now they are a congregation more than any other, which, um, which actually overturns my point A. Uh, here's a point about culture. Our night congregation is one that does suck in non-Christians. It does draw them in. Our night church as an event is the evangelistic event Far more so than life is. People do move from... If, do you hear what I'm saying there? Um, part of that's just the insecurity of youth, I think, that if there's a happening thing, that's where youth want to be. But it works well for them. People come along, they hear the gospel, they get attracted to it, and then they go to life. Culturally, it works different, the way it's worked for us in the morning. Some of you may well find that. Um, Gee, you know, the last couple I'll say very quickly and I'll throw open to you for questions. Theology and sociology. Um, sociology is the pragmatic, isn't it? Um, our course, our evangelism is, is much more robust, much more hard-hitting than alpha. And our presentation of sin is devastating. Um, our, um, uh, our discussion about the Bible and the place it has is... Um, uh, people always remark on it as being helpful um, and one of the things that was so persuasive for them. Um, a willingness to wrestle with the hard questions is helpful for them. But the sociology about the way we set up the course has been very important and really important in terms of gaining the confidence of the congregation. Therefore, I want to urge you, don't underestimate that one. You can't simply put on an event and expect people will show up and you've got to train the Christians so they'll use the event well. Last bit, um, in one sense, the, as I look at this seminar, which I've done before, that order looks too random for me. I'll finish with the last bit. Postmodernism, are we still thinking about postmodernism? We are post, we live in a postmodern society, that's right. But the assumption, it seems to me, in the early days of us engaging with that as, the, as to how it affects evangelism, I think it was overhyped, by which I mean... Postmodernism has changed the way people think, but it hasn't changed the way it hasn't changed the questions people ask. It hasn't really. Deep down, people are actually asking the same questions they've ever asked. There may be some new ones. You know, there may be the question about homosexuality and why is the Bible so homophobic. There may be the question about women and why is the Bible so gender biased. There may be those new ones, but actually, most questions that People ask you the same sorts of questions. It's just that culturally they've subsided into the kind of morass of events that are spoken about by people. Christianity is not one that people speak about publicly. And so it's much harder for the Christian to engage. You've got to help them do that. But the questions are exactly the same. So when we began the life course, there were questions from our young guys. How valuable will it be to run an apologetic section in that course where you give a defence for the reliability of the Bible? Postmodernist Gen Ys just don't think about that stuff. It's not right. They do think about that stuff. As, as soon as you cut through the initial layer of just stuff, that's the first question they ask. Because all those questions are still out there. They've never gone away. I can't imagine that would be the case. The Central Coast is not the cultural centre of the universe. I have worked that out. So, yeah. Um, and, and we do get from some people exactly that. And so you do need to sit down and discuss with them and how do you know what you know. That has, for some of our young people, been a problem. But not many of them.
So there's a cultural oddity there, yeah. That's a, yeah, that's a helpful observation. Um, I think Tim Keller reflected a little while ago on the kind of, you know, people look for the magic bullet in evangelism and they thought it was alpha, it's not alpha. You know, they thought it was um, EE many years ago and those of you who don't know what EE is because you're too young, yeah, that's right. People thought there was a magic bullet. There never has been. One of his observations, though, about the alpha stuff that worked was it was the sociology was powerful in it, but it was... It was the engagement of sitting opposite a Christian for dinner and just talking over stuff so that our night congregation do life, the life event that is, differently to the way our morning congregation do it. They do it, I think they feel by necessity, and they may well be right, they do it cafe style. Morning congregation do it dinner style. And I think the dinner style has a powerful dimension that they miss because when you sit down and you actually have dinner together you get through a whole bunch of the small talk and you you actually develop friendships with people so um, almost invariably we have people at the life course in the morning the dinner version who say I'm really sorry it's ended what are we going to do next week and we have something they can do next week. <laughs> um, but you don't, they don't quite get that at night. And I think, to come back to that, Ken, part of it's because um, you sit down and have a cup of coffee. There's, a, there's something that's temporary about the engagement. And there's a personal engagement, just meeting another Christian and interrogating them. And finding out something about the, the authenticity of their belief. That there's a hidden dimension of evangelism, but a really important one. It's not... It's not even the content that they're hearing, it's the engagement. And that's important. Does a non-Christian being invited to life realise that that's what's going on? Sorry, which bit, Owen? Oh, look, perhaps at grassroots level we do and I don't see that. Yeah. Yeah, it's, that's entirely possible. Um, but I don't think that's the pitch or the expectation. That is, I, I would say people aren't thinking they're going to come along and spend an evening with a whole bunch of Christians. Oh, my goodness. Because <laughs> that would be daunting. I think they're thinking they're going to come along with a whole bunch of other inquirers and they're going to be able to hear something and ask their questions. So that's not, that's not part of the pitch, not part of the expectation. And that goes to the issue of confidence I mentioned before. Our guys have got the confidence to ask and they pitch it that way because I think that's what they've seen themselves. So, yeah, your next question. That is, sorry, that is, you, you doubled Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a pragmatic, if you don't mind my saying, there's a, um, it's, it sounds almost in some Christian circles, and I take it, not here, um, to speak about marketing in evangelism can sound like a dirty word, but actually it's enormously important. So there's a necessity of demystifying an event so the non-Christian knows, so what am I coming to? What will it be like? So the artwork you choose that demonstrates what the event will look like, the language you use, the, all those kind of things are important. In fact, for our Christmas service this year, we, we thought through a spectrum of ideas, but on the spectrum... Our observation is, who is it in the family who gets the non-Christian bloke to come and hear the gospel at Christmas time? It is, isn't it? It's usually the wife. 
So we don't want to feminise our stuff, but we do, if there's a spectrum, we actually did want to pitch it this year slightly toward the feminine end in our pitch. Because we figure they're the ones who actually will, in the end, get the husbands there. Don't want to overplay that, but there's a marketing issue in it. Be that life is the key here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Obviously. So, so what are the principles that get a get a congregation, get night church, say, or EV? What are the things that principle back into the principle level? Just give a summary of it. Can you do that? Yeah. Now you tell me if you think I'm missing some here. Um, principles that would cause them to invite. No, no. Sorry. Principles that would raise the energy of being a mission-driven church, where evangelism is actually happening and people are actually being converted by yeah. God's grace. Yeah, yeah. What gets that going? Uh, in summary, there's something in the DNA of the church that it comes, from, it comes from the pulpit, it comes on every channel, that they're hearing about the significance of evangelism. There's the first thing. Yep. Second thing, I reckon, is seeing it actually happen. Um, that is, seeing the results of it, but participating in it themselves. Um, which is to mention something which I haven't mentioned before, but I know I've spoken to Dave before on. Training in church um, that is never implemented is always useless, and especially at the evangelism level. Sorry, it's almost always useless. There's my Training favorite. that's not implemented. Training that's not immediately reinforced and implemented. So you train people to do two ways to live. If it's never implemented, if it's not immediately implemented, it's never... It's not going to be useful. They'll never remember it. They'll never use it. And so there's a necessity of coupling the training with the way in which they can immediately apply it. So at our night congregation for training, um, the night EV guy who works with me on mission does his training at life. He briefs the congregation member for two weeks about what life will be like, what sort of questions they'll face, how they ought to deal with them. Then he spends a week... He spends six weeks with them at life and they hear questions being asked by the non-Christian. They engage with non-Christians across the table. Then he spends a week debriefing them because he's, he's putting the training and the implementation hand in hand. Pretty important. So there's a second one. That's good. That's good. So, so there's a sense of... So you, you're trying to raise the temperature or to, to get... And so you've got to deal with conviction, confidence, connection... And you're putting on some scaffolding around it to facilitate that, such as particular events... Yep. Uh, sending them off on mission as a team to come back and inject energy back in, promotion and advertising of that. All of those things are kind of temperature raises for you, yeah? yeah that's right, yep, yep. And, the, and the, doing of it, the doing of it actually creates converts of your converts. It creates converts to evangelism. Yeah. So that um, Andrew perhaps would tell the same anecdote, but one of the girls in our office who works there went out and did the survey you know, the summer series survey the other day, what are your four biggest, you know, what are you, what's your biggest doubt about Christianity? She was at work in her secular job and she was thinking, I ought to do the survey, but I really don't want to, but I will. And so she did it. She said, and she reported back, you know, it was so easy. I had four great conversations. Now, she's now a convert, you see, because she's had an easy pitch. She's gone and done it. It's Capture the confidence. And, and if I'm guessing rightly, I know what you want to do next is get a video camera, get Anne on DVD, video, and put her up front. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah? Yep, yeah. Because yeah. people need to then, they need to hear the stories and say, that's, that's me. Yeah. Yeah. Dave, Dave's got a question. We don't want to waste Greg Lucy. You know, we videoed, our, um, we videoed our testimonies. There's something fantastic about a live testimony. I think that's exactly right. But we videoed our testimonies for two reasons. One was you can use them lots of different places. You can use them again and again, though I try never to reuse them. Um, but actually, in videoing a newly converted person, you help do some good follow-up. You help them think through what actually is my story about how I was converted? And they often can't do that very well up front in the same way that 30 years ago they used to be able to do it well. And again, it's because there's just a lack of building blocks in place. It takes a long time. So quick thing I ought to say before Guy comes, the other thing we found about it, the follow-up material was, um, you know, the follow-up material that's on the market is 
40 years, 30 years too old. There was nothing. We had to write everything from scratch. And life actually functions as the six-week course that interests a person in the gospel in which they're almost never converted, in my opinion. Some of them are. But what it draws them to is a 20-week course in which they investigate the gospel. And that's where they're converted. We were driven to videos in part by necessity, but having gone there... It's hugely powerful. So, you know, we had multiple services in the morning and getting the person up to be a personal interview at two services got awkward and they were often... They'd give you a fantastic presentation when you talk to them. you get them up the front and they'd all go to water. And so your alignment got lost. You know, you're trying to use this, as Craig says, not just to say someone's been converted, give thanks, but actually teach the congregation all kinds of stuff. And so the video's been a way that Craig can basically... And help the person who's converted think through their conversion. 